evidence and answers. We have all heard excuses why people don't believe in a creator. For some, it's just a matter of the fact that they can't see God physically with their eyes. For others, God is just an excuse. So what do we do in sharing how we trust in God? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, we will listen to Message 5, taken from the 2017 Apologetics Conference held in Hawaii. Each year, Pat hosts this conference and brings out the best scholars, teachers, and authors to share in teaching and equipping you, the believer, to be able to share your faith effectively in our culture today. The theme was Demolishing Strongholds of Unbelief. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Listen as Greg Kokel presents part two of Bad Arguments Against Religion. Why is it the book of Acts starts out that Jesus appeared to many with many convincing proofs over a period of 40 days? Now, some Christians actually think that faith and knowledge are opposites. So when we give conferences like this and we talk about reasons why you should take Christianity seriously, some Christians will say, well, look at if you've got all this evidence, then where is room for faith? Notice how they put faith over here and they put knowledge over here. The more you know, the less you have room for faith. The less you know, the more faith on their understanding. But this is all topsy-turvy. This is not the New Testament view, okay? So I'm going to give you really quickly a couple of, uh, maybe three examples to show you that the biblical approach is first you have knowledge, you have evidence that leads to knowledge. Let me put it that way. You have evidence that leads to knowledge, and because of the nature of the knowledge, we are encouraged to put our trust in that which we have good reason to know is true. Okay, that's the order. Evidence, knowledge, faith, biblical trust. Okay, and I'm going to start in Exodus chapter 10 or so, and what's happening in Exodus chapter 10? The Exodus, yeah, right. It was buried in Grant's tomb, you know, one of those things. The Exodus. This is actually, Exodus 4 is where it starts. This is where God encounters Moses in the burning bush, and he tells Moses to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And so Moses has got a question, and his question is, why should Pharaoh believe me? Why should the Jews believe me, the Hebrew children? Why should they believe me? Okay, and so God says, what do you got in your hand? Staff, throw it down. He throws it down, it becomes a snake. Pick it up. He picks it up, it becomes a staff again. You, you show that to Pharaoh. And while you're at it, let's see, we're going to get some frogs coming out of the, the Nile, and we get them jumping in their shorts and their pajamas and stuff like that. It'll get their attention. We'll uh, turn that Nile into blood. We'll get the hail coming down. We'll get the boils on the thing, and we'll, we'll, we'll do all of this stuff. Now, why does he say he's going to do all of the ten plagues? And I'll tell you why. It says it in the text. Listen to the words. So that they shall know that there is a God in Israel. And he doesn't say it once, he doesn't say it twice, he doesn't say it five times, he says it ten different times in the text. God is demonstrating to both the Egyptians and the Jews 
who he is and what he's like, and he's over all of those other gods of the ancient Near East. And in fact, every single plague was direct was in a direct assault against an Egyptian deity. You worship the sun, I'll put the sun out. You worship life, I'll take the life of the firstborn, that kind of thing, okay? Now why, what was the upshot? The upshot was this, Exodus 14, verse 31, and watch this, and when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant. Notice the, what is the order there? First, the evidence that led to knowledge that then the people put their trust in or regarded. Okay, that was the foundation. But it doesn't end there. I'm going to fast forward to 1 Kings 18, and there you got Elijah, the prophets of Baal. It's a contest, really. Whose God is God? And so Elijah says, build two pyres, um, like stone things, put wood all around them, and then you guys pray. You call down from heaven the power of your gods, and I'll pray to Yahweh, and the God that answers with fire is God. Okay, so this is like the Super Bowl. So the bad guys get to pray first. You go ahead. All day long, ranting and raving and praying, and here's where Elijah's over here going, Where's your God? Is he taking a break? Is he going to the bathroom? That's what he says. All day long, nothing. They start cutting themselves, bleeding all over the place. Doesn't do any good. He said, all right, my turn. And he then has them dump water all over, all over the pyre, right? Now, this is at the top of the mountain. They had to haul that water up the mountain, right? What else was going on for three years during this time? There was a drought. He's probably laughing, man. He's just going, yeah, a little more water. No, 10 more, 100 more buckets. He doesn't want any stray spark that flies up from somewhere to maybe light it all. And, and then he prays a short prayer. Let's just see. It was something like 37 words or something like that. Answer me, oh God, answer me that this people may, what's our word? No that thou art God. Pow, boom, down came the fire. You see, there was evidence that Elijah was asking for, and the evidence was able to deliver, adequate to deliver a verdict on the reality of God. Fast forward to the New Testament, you got Jesus in Mark chapter 2, real popular at this early point of his ministry that didn't last, but every, he was a happening thing, and so everybody's showing up, they're filling this house, can't even get around to any windows. So a couple of guys, three guys, go up to the top of the roof. They pull the roof apart, and then they drop their buddy down. The buddy is a paralytic. And Jesus sees them and is aware of their faith, and he says, your sins are forgiven you. Of course, this is a little bit weird because the people listen and say, hey, who can forgive sins but God alone? And he's aware of this. So he says, what is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or arise, take up your pallet, and go home? Well, when you think about it, I mean, what would be easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven you, or I see people in wheelchair, arise out of the wheelchair. Well, look it, if, if they don't get up, I look pretty foolish, right? But I can say, your sins are forgiven all day long, and nobody knows. So it almost appears like Jesus took the easy way out. And then he says this, listen to the words, in order that you might, what's our word? 
know in order that you may know. Know comes before belief. First evidence, then knowledge, then belief. That's the order. In order that you might know that the Son of God has the authority to forgive sins, I say to you, arise, take up your pallet and go home. And he got up and he got out. In other words, he produced a miracle in the physical realm that could be seen to verify an event in the non-physical realm that could not be seen. You see, same order. First evidence, then knowledge, and then act of belief, faith, trust. Okay. Last example, Acts chapter 2. I'm giving you things all through the scripture. So the Pentateuch, the prophets, you got the life of Jesus, now the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples in the upper room. They all pour out. There's tongues of fires. There's a rushing wind. There's a big noise. They're speaking in other tongues. It's a big commotion. People that are gathered from all these nations to worship God the high holy days, they say, well, oh, those guys are drunk. Right? Peter says, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. We don't start drinking until noon. This is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> now, he didn't put that part in there, but he was kind of getting at that. It's too early to get drunk. What you see and hear is the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this was prophesied by Joel, and now it's happening. So, fulfillment of prophecy. And not only that, you know that guy you put to death? Jesus, he rose. And we saw it. We are witnesses. And this is also a fulfillment of prophecy. David in the Psalms. By the way, do you notice there in the very first sermon of the church age, Peter gives a sermon that is absolutely chock full of apologetics. Do you see that? And then what does he say at the end of the sermon? Let all the house of Israel, what's our word again? No, but then he adds a little bit. No, for certain. That is, you can have the highest degree of confidence based on the resurrection of Jesus. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Savior, this Jesus whom you crucified. And what happened? They were cut to the quick. And they say, what must we do? And they said, believe, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And thousands were added that day because they put their trust in the Savior based on the evidence that led to knowledge that allowed them to put their trust in the Savior. So what I want you to see is that the Bible does not teach blind faith. Go to Acts 16, 17, 18, 19. There's Paul reasoning with them in the synagogues, as was his custom, and some of them were persuaded. By goodness, how do people miss that? It's all over, okay? If you say that what religion is and what we're doing is an act of blind faith, you are not understanding our point of view. That is a bad argument against religion. That's two. Okay, here's mistake number three, and this is going to catch some of you a little bit by surprise. But I'm just telling you, if you can get this, this is golden. This is absolutely golden, okay? And we've already covered a little bit of this ground to lay a predicate for this, so you guys may get it pretty quickly, all right? Okay, and the bad argument here, the third bad argument, is using the problem of evil to argue against the existence of God. It is not a good idea to use the problem of evil to argue against God, and the reason is it is not a good evidence against God. It turns out to be one of the most powerful evidences for God. 
Now, we went halfway on this yesterday. We talked about the problem of relativism. Remember when we say that people complain about the problem of evil? This means that morality is not just an individual private affair. You have your truth, I have mine. But morality has got to be something, a, a, a set of rules that apply to everybody, such that when those rules get broken, we have evil and people complain about it. Now, remember when we had that discussion? Okay, we're halfway there. In, I asked you about bowling. Do we talk about bowling a little bit? How do you know a good bowler? The scoring system, right? I did talk about that. We talked about relativism last night, right? Yeah. Okay, I did make the point. You know, the ice cream, right, right. But I made the point that if morals are relative, right, then there can't be a problem of evil. You remember that part, right? Because the problem of evil requires a set of rules that go over everybody that are just not individual, all right? And I usually use the illustration of bowling. How do you know a good bowler from a bad bowler? Somebody tell me. The score. Good and bad are terms that only have meaning relative to a score, okay? So when we say there's evil in the world, there must be some set of rules that a scorekeeping system that we're assessing good and bad by. But if you deny the scorekeeping system, that's relativism. I keep going over here to relativists, and these are the objectivists. So I don't think you're relativists. It's just, it's good pedagogy, okay? So you guys are the losers. You are the really good ones right here. So if you don't believe in a scorekeeping system, then there can't be any ultimate good or evil. The problem of evil disappears if relativism is true, okay? But if the problem of evil is really a problem, then relativism must be false. There must be a, a system of scorekeeping. That's where we were last night. But here's my question. Who made the rules? Where did the system of scoring come from? I mean, somebody invented bowling, right? They come up with every game, every single thing that we characterize as good or bad or right or wrong, virtue or vice, there's, a, there's some kind of scoring system we're referring to. Where did the scoring system come from? I'm just going to say, you're not going to get an objective scoring system over everybody. Darwin isn't going to get that for you. Darwin's going to give you a subjective system inside of you, just relativism, if it can even do that, which I don't think it can even do that, but that's the best it can do. It's not going to get you the kind of morality that is necessary to make sense of the problem of evil. You've got to have real rules out there, and those rules require a rule maker. Obligations are held between people. We don't have obligations to things. I don't owe this stage anything. I owe persons things. And if we have a transcendent set of laws, that means it's a transcendent lawmaker that is the best explanation. Now look at I've thought about this thing for years. I've written a lot about it, examined it every single way that people try to get out of it, and none of them is going to work at all. The most obvious answer regarding the presence of good and evil in the world, which means, therefore, there's a presence of a set of laws, is that there must be a moral standard, a personal moral standard of the universe God. You want to argue against God based on the problem of evil, you're going to get yourself into a hole. And this is why philosophers do not argue this way anymore, not on the deductive problem of evil. They just don't do it because they know it's not going to work. And even on the inductive problem, is it's still faltering for the same reason. Okay, So don't go that direction. You're going to just going to fall into a hole. It turns out that evil is not a good argument against God, it's a good argument for God. Now, does that solve the problem of evil? No, it doesn't solve it. We still have questions regarding that that we have to answer within our worldview. And I'm not going to do that talk right now. I did that at University of Hawaii the other night. 
But I'm just trying to make the point, though, that if you want to go after God based on evil, you're going to back yourself into a corner, okay? And that's the bad argument against God. Evil is evidence for God. It is not evidence against God. This is the classic moral argument for the existence of God. You can read C.S. Lewis, the first couple of chapters of his book. He develops that idea there. The last couple of chapters of Relativism, some of you purchased it. That's where I developed that idea there. So you can get it in a more robust form. But the basic concept is simple, okay? Evil is evidence for God, not against him. That's three bad arguments. What about a fourth? Hmm. Here's the fourth bad argument. Thinking that science has somehow disproved religion. I don't believe in religion, Michael Shermer says, American atheist, founder of Skeptic Magazine. I debated him on national radio for three hours. I don't believe in religion. I believe in science. It's kind of a false dichotomy. Science is just a method of doing things and discovering things, you know. But in any event, that's what he says. He feels like science has somehow, and many atheists do, has somehow disqualified religious belief, okay? Now this, I'm just telling you right now, this is not possible. I'm not saying they haven't done it. I'm saying it's not even possible to do that. So let me ask you a question to make this point. Can you weigh a chicken with a yardstick? Now I know some of you guys, the engineering types, say, yeah, I can make a balance beam out of it, and I can do the thing like that. Not what I'm talking about. Can you use a yardstick the way a yardstick was intended to be used and come up with the weight of a chicken? The answer is no. You can get the length of a chicken. You can't get the weight of a chicken. But if you can't use the yardstick to weigh the chicken, does that mean the chicken has no weight? No, of course not. You're using the wrong thing to measure, right? Well, science is the same way. Science is a fabulous way of learning certain limited things. Truths about the physical universe, okay? It is not designed to tell you, certainly directly, anything about the non-physical world. It's not its job. It's a natural limitation of science. It's not a put-down on science. It's just that science can only go so far. That's it. When people who believe that science is somehow invade against religion, they're missing the point of science entirely. Now, I'm not saying that scientific evidence can't be used to infer something about the supernatural world. I think that's possible. That's indirect. But what it cannot do is it cannot foreclose on anything non-physical. It's, it's not capable of doing it. And this is a mistake that Time Magazine made a number of years ago when they had a cover story on consciousness, okay? What, consciousness is our awareness of the world and of ourselves, okay? That's why I say our conscious awareness, sentience, if you will. And what Time Magazine said was they did this whole thing, and I read the whole article. They're trying to figure out what consciousness is, and at the end of the article, they said, we don't know what it is. And they still have the same problem, although I'll, I'll say that, I'll tell you, some say that's just an illusion. This is Daniel Dennett, one of the new atheists. That's where he goes with it. But this is a crazy alternative. Maybe I'll speak to that in a moment. But, but let's just say in this article, they say, you know, we don't know. We're still mystified because what are they trying to do? They're trying to reduce consciousness to something physical. All these neurosurgeons and neurologists and scientists are trying to figure out consciousness. The problem is, is consciousness is not physical. So what's the conclusion at the end of the article? Here's what they say. 
I'm not making this up. Uh, time, July 17, 1995, page 52, okay? Here's our conclusion. We don't know what consciousness is, but we know what it's not. It's not a soul. There is no you inside there that's making things happen. The lights are on, but nobody's home. That was what they said. How did they know this? Remember the question. How did you come to that conclusion? So how do they know this? They give you two reasons. First one, scientists have been looking for the soul for 100 years and haven't been able to find it. Second reason, look it up. I'm not making this up. Second reason, there is no conceivable space in the brain for the soul to fit. Look, if there is a, that, that's like saying, you know, you told me there was an invisible man in your house. I went in there. I didn't see him anywhere. <laughs> I looked under the bed and in the closet. Well, look it. If there is an invisible man in there, you're not going to see him. He's invisible, right? And you can't say, I didn't see him, and therefore he doesn't exist. Now, that doesn't prove that an invisible man does exist. It just shows that there's one way that you can't disqualify the idea. And by the same token, when it comes to the issue of the existence of the soul, there, there are ways to prosecute this concern, to try to figure out whether souls exist or not, all right? Um, but one way not to do it is to say scientists haven't found it yet and there's no space for it to fit, souls are immaterial. They don't need any space to fit anywhere. Do you see that? Man, I, I, I've been thinking about the number two, and man, it's a really big number two. I can feel it kind of pushing my brain out a little bit because I got to think about a smaller number because, man, it's really poking me in the ear a lot. <laughs> I mean, poking fun a little bit to show you the foolishness of this kind of objection. It, it's not a foolish because I can get you to laugh at it. You're laughing at it because it's foolish. That's the point. There's an appropriate use of humor in these kinds of things and an inappropriate use of humor. I'm not trying to win the, my point by ridicule. I'm just trying to show that the idea itself is ridiculous. And that's why you chuckle. It is. It is. So science is not equipped to disqualify anything, any, broadly anything spiritual. Now, somebody say, well, I, I was healed miraculously. And the doctor might go, no, your arm's still broken. Okay. Well, they can do that. They can look at a particular instance of a claim to a supernatural effect on a human body and show that nothing has been affected. I mean, that could, they can do that. That's not, not controversial. But what they can't do is foreclose on anything itself spiritual. Now, I got, I got more to say, but I got no more time. So let me just close with this. Why is it that so many smart people do not believe in Christianity? And I think this probably bothers some people because you think about smart people in your life, professors and PhDs or whatever, and you think, golly, man, they're the smart guys. And, and most of the smart people I know don't believe in Jesus. And that kind of, kind of puts you off a little bit. Well, I just want to point out something. Most of the dumb people you know don't believe in Jesus, right? It has nothing to do with being smart or dumb. That isn't it. It has to do with these things that I was talking about earlier, that even really intelligent people make simple mistakes, foolish mistakes in thinking when it comes to spiritual things. Why? Because what God requires is that human beings bend their knee, and people will believe all kinds of foolish stuff to keep from surrendering their personal autonomy. That is what's going on in my IMHO, in my humble opinion. That's the kind of thing that is going on. People do not want to put God on the throne of their life. Christianity represents too big of a moral 
an ethical demand on people. If you're here tonight and you're not a follower of Jesus, there are legitimate ways you can challenge Christianity. Have at it. May the best idea win. But don't make these mistakes. These are just, you're going to end up into a hole, and then you, you know, it just look a little foolish. If you're a Christian, understand. Christianity can compete in the marketplace of ideas. The smart money is on Jesus of Nazareth. This is what we've been talking about all weekend long. And I hope for the rest of the faculty that was part of this conference, I hope that this is just a beginning for you. And that what you begin to do now in your life is you take the talks that you've listened to and the tools that you receive and begin to apply them, like I said in the very first talk, what's going to happen is you're going to find that things are going to really change for you and your ability to make a difference. For the Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll see we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, Pat's books, and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Oh, 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 oh,